the current research into therapeutic uses of psychedelics, MDMA for PTSD in veterans, uh, uh, psilocybin for chronic depression. Just be curious to hear your thoughts on these potentially innovative therapies. Yo, this is straight in there, man. Thank you very much for that question. You've given us uh, really hot clickbait material. I intentionally wore my little drug dealer hat here just to make it even spicier for the thumbnail. But Steve, this is something that I actually have never really had the chance to talk to you about. And it's something that every single podcaster and their Grammy seems to have something to say about. So I'm interested to hear some of your takes on it. Honestly, I'm eager to hear what Granny has to say about, <laughs> about Molly and her friends. But uh, you don't yeah, know my no. granny, dude. She's like an Irish shaman, and people just come to her, and she's like, she's got something for everything. <laughs> Can we bring her on? <laughs> this sounds amazing. That would be an amazing title for an episode podcast interview with my Irish shaman granny. <laughs> oh my god! Yes, let's go. Okay, so this is a great, great, great question. I have so many thoughts, but what I want to do, if it's okay, is zoom out metaphorically zoom out to just to get a sense of the landscape at 30,000 feet. Like when we look at the entire space of pharmacological drug interventions for mental health, for mental illness, one of the big takeaways, and we've touched on this at several points, is that absolutely medications have helped improve and save millions of lives worldwide. We have to get that out there. Medications can be enormously useful. Okay, that's my preface to the following point, which is to a first approximation, our current armamentarium of medications are not very good. Okay, yes, they have helped many people, but they're not very good in the sense that they do not bring about complete and lasting healing for the majority of people who take them. And so those of us who are in the field who are, have been down in the trenches working with people who are suffering profoundly from myriad different forms of mental illness, we're just banging our heads against the wall. And that was the catalyst, honestly, that led me on my own journey as a clinical researcher to go from being basically a bench scientist doing real basic science in relative obscurity, but, you know, happy as a lark, to saying... <laughs> Okay, no, 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 no. You know what? We need, we're, there's such desperate need for better treatment that I'm going to be a treatment researcher now. I'm going to be an interventionist because I had that flash of insight that so many of our modern affliction, so much of our modern suffering is really due to this profound mismatch between the way we're living and the way our bodies and brains are designed to be living, which is very different, right? We inhabit a very different world from that of our ancestors, even a couple centuries ago, let alone 20,000 years ago. So, okay, that's the backdrop. Our treatments are not very good on average. And so we have a profound need to make them better. One way that we can make them better, of course, is to lean into and leverage the power of therapeutic lifestyle. But I'm all about, like, let's do all the things. By any means necessary, let's throw everything we can that could possibly be useful at suffering, such as clinical depression, which, as we've talked about before, globally is the main driver for about a 1 million deaths due to suicide every year. Let's throw everything we can 
at clinical anxiety, which is crippling and paralyzing, and at substance use disorders and at eating disorders and so forth. So psychedelics, they seem to hold this really tantalizing therapeutic potential, and yet they haven't really been very extensively investigated by researchers. So what we're left with, and we're not going to take the time right now to go on a rant about why (laughs) federal agencies in the U.S. (laughs) and the U.K. and Europe have been so profoundly terrified of psychedelics and have scheduled them. What I mean by scheduled is classified and regulated them as if they're the same thing as heroin and the same thing as cocaine. I mean, absolutely they're not. So let's get that out of the way. If somebody came to us and said, well, hey, Hugh, hey, Steve, how about heroin? That has mood elevating (laughs) effects. That can be really anxiolytic. It can really help anxiety. Oh, it can help people sleep. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's like, no, you know what? No, it's like profoundly addictive and it kills people because it's super easy to overdose on it and stop breathing. Psychedelics are nothing like that. Hugh, I was literally last week, as you know, I was giving a workshop at a big addiction treatment center in Colorado. And I'm talking with clinicians and others who are on the front lines of treating substance use disorders. And one of the key leaders in that center made just a side, you know, throwaway line about all the interest in psychedelics and mentioned how they were really addictive. And I had to stop him, I mean, very gently and correct him and say, actually, no, every drug of addiction targets the brain's dopamine-based reward circuits in the middle of the brain, the so-called pleasure centers. Psychedelics do not generally do that. And so they don't have craving. People that have an experience on MDMA or psilocybin, LSD, ayahuasca, they don't generally have this incredible drive, this craving to go back and keep using and using and using. And for many people, it's a one-off or maybe a couple of experiences, maybe a handful. Okay, so why has research on these substances been so limited? Because for the last 50, 60 years, regulatory bodies in the US and the UK and Europe and other parts of the world have said, oh my God, these drugs are so dangerous that we can't possibly do any research on them. They're going to kill people, you know, run for your lives, boys and girls, which is really a profound shame because when ecstasy, for example, MDMA was first discovered, it wasn't called ecstasy. A lot of clinicians who were experimenting with it as an aid to psychotherapy, they were calling it empathy. Why? Because this is a drug that, among other things, seems to provoke the brain to release an attachment hormone called oxytocin, the so-called cuddle hormone. And so people under the influence of MDMA often, I mean, I think sort of notoriously, have a profound drive to connect with the people or they feel very warm and affectionate, sometimes too affectionate. Um, (laughs) With complete strangers, they let their guard down. They're more trusting. And that can be really dangerous in a club setting, for sure. Recreationally, Molly has a kind of mixed track record, I would say. I'm speaking here as a researcher, not not from my own personal experience. No judgment, but I'll be completely transparent. I've never tried MDMA, but you can weigh in at any time on your own. I don't know. My granny might be watching, so I'll probably uh, okay. not. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good call. All right. So 
MDMA, let's think about this. 50 years ago, 55, 60 years ago, psychotherapists, psychiatrists and psychotherapists were like, hey, what if we had a patient with a trauma history and they come into psychotherapy very often very damaged, very defensive, very guarded, very scared. And the quality of their trusting therapeutic alliance with the clinician is going to be a rate limiting factor, a rate limiting factor of effective care. So if that patient is able to take a small dose of MDMA and they then find, hey, their guard is coming down, they're more trusting, they can get into the work of therapy much more quickly. To me, that's a really elegant catalyst. Notice that the drug is not curative on its own. The drug simply sets the stage for the effective psychotherapeutic work. It's just a catalyst. It's really, really interesting. Yeah, and I love how you compared it to, okay, in a club setting, this is not necessarily an ideal situation. <laughs> but if you have a lot of trauma and you don't necessarily want to open up to a therapist or a professional about trauma you have in your past or you don't trust the person or whatever, this could be a really useful unlock to maybe in some ways even just accelerate the process. Maybe it would take six months with traditional psychotherapy could be done in a shorter space of time, but I think it's really key what you've said. It's not a case of like, oh, I watched this big podcaster talk about MDMA and then I'm just going to take it on my sofa at home and it's going to cure me of something. It's like, no, 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 <laughs> no. Absolutely like, not. Let's do it with an intention. Let's do it where there's actually a goal that you're working towards and that there is boundary or that community around you that's professional enough to like hold your hand through that as opposed to you just kind of free falling by yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I think almost all of us intuitively can get a sense of like, okay, let me think about this. If I take a drug that causes me to indiscriminately take my guard down and be very trusting for the people around me and feel very affectionate and very warm to the people around me, that is a very, very powerful psychoactive effect. And it could go either way in terms of being beneficial or harmful, right? In other words, it just is. It's a massive effect. It's a massive shift in our state of mind. And if we are not in a safe setting with one or more people who profoundly care about us and have our very, very best interests at heart, we're very vulnerable to being taken advantage of. And it's one of the reasons why I just wanted to put it out there as like in a club setting as a party drug, this can be really harmful for some people. And so it definitely, in my view, should be a controlled substance just to keep people safe. But I'm really, really curious, both intellectually, scientifically, and I guess clinically, about its potential as a catalyst for good psychotherapy. Now, Having said that, I've never done therapy. I mean, I've treated hundreds of patients in therapy, but I've never conducted therapy knowingly with a patient who was taking MDMA. But if that were available, let's say in five or 10 years, and it could be done in a, a legal and appropriate setting, I would be eager to give it a go. I mean, I think maybe it's just pretty intuitively obvious. We can both see like, hey, yeah, this might actually pan out. Now the proof's in the pudding. And we've just got to do, we've just got to do the carefully controlled research to figure out if this really lives up to the hype. And if you don't mind, I feel like that's a really nice pivot, the hype thing, to pivot to psilocybin. Because there's a lot of hype 
right now. Can I just jump in there with the, with the hype? So I, like you, I'm like pretty open to anything. If the research is there and it looks like it's working, I'm like, great, let's rule it out in a way that's appropriate. I do by my nature. I don't know if it's because I'm like in recovery and have struggled with different addictions in the past. I just have like a real gut level pushback to any hype that's like, this is the answer. This is the solution. This is what we finally been waiting on. If you just take this one thing, all of your wildest dreams will come true and all of your pain will disappear. Because I'm just like, guys, I get it. Like, I'm excited with you. But I also just know like time and time again, after getting on that hype train so many times that there is no magic bullet and there is no shortcut up the mountain. And even if it is the magic bullet, like it's going to come with you still like putting in an insane amount of work. And so in all the hype, I'm just like, guys, please just, this is not a shortcut because it just does not really exist. That's just how I feel about it. Yeah, well, I resonate with that a lot. Having said that, and I think it's good that we both put that caveat out there. Let's talk about at least why many people, including many clinicians and researchers, are excited about psilocybin. In other words, like what is the theoretical upside of this drug? What is it potentially? So psilocybin, for listeners who aren't as familiar They've been living in a cave for the past decade. Psilocybin is, Hugh, you didn't even laugh at that. I'm doing dad joke material here, so yeah. Oh, there you go. That's a very good force. Hey, hang on one second, one second, one second. What about it? We've been a lot. Oh! Okay, thank, thank, yeah. See, that's, wow. That's what I'm talking about right there. All right, that's, 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 oh my God. Ladies and gentlemen, um, Hugh has discovered a soundboard that's got effect. Please don't, don't run through the, okay. We'll just let the listener know there may be other effects uh, coming at some point. He does have a, uh, what do they call that? The little uh, fake drum roll Yeah, thing. I don't know. Like just the, I, I get the drum joke or something. I don't know. What'd you call it? Yeah, I don't know. When I was in college, we called it boom tink. But <laughs> <laughs> is that the scientific name for it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I wanted to pivot to the following. What is the theoretical upside of psilocybin? If it's really doing what it's, its most enthusiastic proponents claim, the substance that we see in psychedelic mushrooms, so-called magic mushrooms, it's the main active ingredient. It's what makes them magical, as it were. And it does have a profound psychedelic effect. It generally, depending on the dose, at higher doses, like, well, 25 micrograms or so, we see people get a kind of dissolving of their sense of personal identity, personal space, their body being situated and located in a concrete space at a concrete time. And the circuits in the brain that locate us in the here and now, they start to go offline. And the subjective experience for many people is a feeling of melding and blending with the universe, with those around them. It's a kind of nearly out-of-body experience that for many people is existentially profound because if they're in the right set and setting and frame of mind, what people describe under the influence of psilocybin is a kind of transcendence, a kind of like, oh, I got beyond myself and the narrow confines of my petty little self and petty little ego and I was part of something much bigger than myself. I was part of the divine and the magic and the transcendence of this universe. Yeah, it's like you realize how small you are and 
you know, the problems and the pain that is all consuming for you in the present. Like when you have that zoom out experience, you're like, whoa, this is just so ant like, you know what I mean? And maybe an inappropriate comparison would be the difference between you going through like suffering and then having like an acquaintance of yours going through suffering. Like whenever they're telling you the story, you can be moved to a certain extent. But if you don't really know them, if they're not really that close to you, you're kind of just like, oh, that's terrible. Like, I'm so sorry to hear that. Whereas if you were the one like telling the story, it would just mean everything to you and it would be your whole world and it would be all consuming. And it's that perspective shift I think can be really powerful. Absolutely. So the first carefully controlled study that I'm aware of with psilocybin in the U.S. took place, well, there were two, one at Johns Hopkins and one at UC San Francisco. And this was back in about a decade ago. And the only way the researchers could get approval because remember, this is in the U.S., a so-called Schedule 4 substance, which is means it's regarded, excuse me, a Schedule 1 substance. It's like DEFCON. One, one is the word. <laughs> schedule 1, which means like, okay, this is on par with heroin. It's like super, super, super dangerous. I think we call it a Class A drug. Okay. Yeah, I like that better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So anyway... The only way the researchers could get permission from our drug enforcement agency and the FDA and others to use this initially was they're like, okay, we're going to use it on terminal cancer patients who probably have less than a year or so to live. So That's they're brilliant. dying. <laughs> and we're only going to use it on terminal cancer patients who are being tormented by anxiety over their impending death. So they have incredible fear of death. And I think the reasoning of the regulators was, well, they're dying anyway. So what's the worst that could happen? I don't mean to be glib about this. No, well, you know, also as you're speaking, I'm like, if I was in that scenario, that would be the moment where I would be the most open to something like that. I'd be like, oh, sure. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, what's the worst that could happen? So these individuals who enter the study, terminal cancer, profound anxiety that was tormenting them every day and existential fear of death. They take a dose of psilocybin. Now this drug, when it's taken at psychedelic doses will basically have a hallucinogenic effect for about six hours. So individuals as they're transitioning from their normal state of consciousness to this very trippy place where they're kind of out of their body and out of their sense of self. If they are not in the presence of ideally two very skilled therapeutic guides, it can go bad. And there are lots of documented cases of people who freak the hell out and get terrified and traumatized by this experience. So in psychedelic research, it's very common to talk about the set and the setting. So they have to be in the right mindset and they have to be in a setting that's very controlled, very calm. It's not highly dynamic and very like, you couldn't have somebody out at a club with all the thumpa thumpa thumpa, you know, and the lights and this, uh, you know. You've got your own soundboard there, I see. <laughs> I, I like that, producer Steve, go ahead. Hey, <laughs> let's go. So. If the patient is in the right mindset where they understand in advance, here's kind of what you may expect, what could happen. And they've got two skilled therapeutic guides 
to reassure them everything that's happening is normal and expected and just go with it and maybe talk about what you're experiencing, what's coming to you, what you're seeing, what you're thinking about experiencing. What happens after a couple of hours or so from this psychoactive dose is that most patients feel like they're entering another realm. They're traveling. They're traveling out of their body somehow. And what's really interesting is some neuroscientifically informed researchers who've taken the trip, they know. So like if you did this to me, I'm going in. And I'm a scientific skeptic, obviously. Well, I don't know if it's obvious, but it's obvious to me. I'm a scientific skeptic. And I'm going in and I'm like, okay, this is, this is a brain trick. This drug is hacking my brain and it's taking offline some of the circuits and my right parietal cortex that locate my body in space and time. And I'm going to have this trippy dissociative experience. You're like the guy that goes to see David Blaine and understands like all of the specific like magician's tricks that he has. And you're like, yeah, it's not real magic. Whereas I go and I'm like, whoa, this is so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so here's the freaky thing. Even the hard-boiled skeptics who go into this thing knowing this is a trick on my brain. They come back six hours later four to six hours after the effect wears off by then. And they're like, oh my God. Yeah, I know it was like this thing, you know, did this stuff to my brain, but that just opened the door and I've been to this other realm and it's real. It's freaking real and it's life-changing. Okay, now, so you can imagine for the typical terminal cancer patient, not burdened by the neuroscience, not burdened by the skepticism, they came back from this trip, most of them, and said, I have such a profound sense of peace and tranquility. And like, I'm okay with this. It's like, everything is gonna be okay. Yeah, my body's dying, but this was such a profound experience. I just feel like I'm at one with the people around me, with the universe. And they did a follow-up. I believe it was at UCSF where the vast majority of these patients, even months later, they just had one experience in the initial study. The great majority of them, even a few months later, were saying, yeah, this effect is still with me. It was one of the most meaningful things I've ever done. So that's really the acid test for any sort of all right all right oh my god you know what will this be on the acid test (laughs) i do apparently i do dad jokes even unconsciously now Uh, i'm just thinking while we're in this little like comedic break here i was thinking like as you were speaking i was like dude what the heck was the placebo in those trials like imagine how disappointed you would be like okay this is going to be the magic experience you get a normal mushroom and you bite into it you're like womp, womp, womp. <laughs> yeah well it's funny you should raise that and maybe we're gonna take a deep dive into all this right yeah we'll do a full like two hour yeah psychedelic experience together that'll be good fun okay so i don't want to give away too much uh now then because we're already at like i think like the half hour mark and that was about our target but what i will say is finding a good placebo control has been an enormous challenge the the best one that i've seen in this kind of research is to give somebody a high dose of niacin 
which is a B vitamin that is characterized at high doses by a so-called niacin flush. And so the person with high dose niacin will feel sort of tingly all over, especially in their face and their head, but maybe all over their body. And we'll get this really profound sort of skin reaction where the blood vessels dilate and they feel all flush and tingly. And it's not terrible as a control. It at least gives the patients an idea like, oh, this drug is doing something to me. And if they're in a mindset of like, oh, this is going to really be trippy, then they might convince themselves that something psychedelic is happening. But it's really hard. It's really hard to control this adequately, obviously. I love that. Well, look, I'm happy enough. Like, is there anything burning? You just have to get yes, off your chest. Come I have on. to get off my chest. Let's yeah. do it. I always know there is, but I always just try to like <laughs> guide us towards the runway at least. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, let's just close with one little quick nugget. The biggest ever controlled trial of psilocybin for depression so far, 59 patients in the UK and they were randomly assigned depressed, so they're pretty profoundly depressed, randomly assigned to get Lexapro, which is a drug called escitalopram is the generic. In the US, in the States, we call it Lexapro. I don't, do you have Lexapro? We call it citalopram because we don't really have drug names over here. Okay, well, pro tip, citalopram is different from escitalopram, slightly. Ooh. Yeah, so citalopram, we call Celexa, escitalopram, we call Lexapro. They're pretty comparable drugs, but allegedly Lexapro's a little bit more favorable side effect profile. So patients randomly assigned to get uh, psilocybin or the antidepressant, depressed patients. And at the end of six weeks, oh, by the way, the patients who got psilocybin got two doses and uh, spaced two weeks apart, two sessions with the therapist. They got two trained therapist 